Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're looking at 2006's Wimbledon, where Roger won his eighth Grand Slam title. First final, Brian, Roger won against Rafa. Fourth straight Wimbledon. And the first of three consecutive finals against Rafa. This is going to, to say the least, going to be a very Rafa-intensive podcast episode. And I'm sure you'll indulge me on that. And at the end of the pod, I'm going to engage you with a little goat debate. I have some categories that I've created. And I'm going to throw them out at you. And I'm going to have you pick your player. And we'll tally it up and offer the world, Brian, the definitive one-stop shop goat calculator. Well, this seems a little bit early for the goat conversation, doesn't it? Here at Major Title Number Nine. Yeah, but Major, this is a spoilers podcast, if you will. We know the anybody that's listening to this knows that they're at twenty to nineteen right now, and I think it's. Um, I think we cannot do the. I think I don't think we can do this podcast without going into overwhelming detail with Rafa Nadal as well. And pretty soon, Novak Djokovic also. So why not start now? I thought it was nice. If I, We're going to start the debate. The debate can evolve, but it's this is their first Clash of the Titans, if you will. And the rivalry that you spoke about last episode really kind of starts here as well. Um, there's a little bit of animosity. There's a little bit of discomfort. Roger doesn't even think there's a rivalry at this point, but I'm going to go guns blazing at you right off the top here, Brian. Coming in, Roger lost the French to Nadal in four sets. He lost earlier in the year to Nadal in Dubai in Monte Carlo. Nadal was 6-1 and one against Roger coming into this tournament. Federer, my guy, ultimate apologist, right? He's lost to Nadal more than then he's won. How much of a dent does that put, not macro, right now we're focusing on, on just 2006, how much of a dent does that put on 2006 being the GOAT year? Um, it dents it, but I don't think it destroys it because, and I was busting your chops about about the this time for the GOAT argument, but I, I agree with you 100%. This is the perfect time to start because when people hear, especially, you know, let's say the, the casual tennis fan, um, you think of this Federer-Nadal rivalry, you're probably going to think first of those Wimbledon finals. They played three in a row, 06, 07, 08, and here we are, the first taste of that. Um, how does it dent it? Well, you mentioned the Dubai loss. That was after Federer won Australia, and that was a loss to Nadal that ended what was a 56-match win streak on hard courts for Federer. So that, that's a big blow right there because you're not losing to Nadal on clay. You're losing to him basically on your turf, for back, lack of a better term here. You know, first time they played, Miami 2004, Nadal beats him. That was this big, stunning, shocking thing. Um, but he does it again here. And now you're starting to feel a little bit less comfortable if you're Federer because then you go on to clay. Well, first... 
if you're Roger Federer, you turn in the standard sunshine double. You win Indian Wells. You win Miami in back-to-back weeks, something most players would trade their entire careers for. Federer just notches it off. But then you're going onto Nadal's turf, and that turf is clay. Loses to him in Monte Carlo. And then what I'm going to say is probably the best men's match of the last 20 years, the Rome final. This match in itself is a big reason why uh, Masters finals are now best of three sets, no longer best of five sets. Federer had championship points on Nadal's serve, could not convert. They go to a fifth set tiebreak. Federer's up 5-3. He's two points from the Rome title, loses four points in a row. Nadal's the Rome champion again, and this is now three straight wins over Federer in 2006. Rome, by the way, a tournament Federer still has never won to this day. Then the French Open finals, Nadal's the defending champion. He beats Federer, first time Federer's ever lost in a major final. So does this destroy the, the GOAT year argument of 2006? No, but these are big body blows to Roger. He comes into this Wimbledon in a very different position than he had for the last three or four years where, okay, he's still out in front, but the pack Rafael Nadal is nipping at his heels. He is not far and away better than everybody. He has this guy on him like white on rice. Love the term body blow. Dead accurate. I'm going to ask you a question that there's no answer for, but I'm just going to ask it anyway because it merits discussion. How did he figure out how to beat Roger? Besides being Rafa and all the things that Rafa does, you kind of touch, have touched on it already in a previous episode. Uh, he goes to his weakness, which if we decided to not call it a weakness, we decided to call it a chink in the armor. He attacks Roger's backhand. I'm still not convinced that that's a weakness. You might have to do a better job as we go through this, getting me to believe you on that. But how does Rafa do it? Okay, it's not a weakness. Think of it this way. In the first Star Wars movie, how did they blow up the Death Star? They found the one vulnerability and they were able to put the torpedoes through it and the whole thing blew up. You know, the Death Star was still pretty powerful as we saw in that movie. That's what it was here. Whereas Nadal's not, oh, I'm going to target the backhand, but Nadal as a lefty, that's the big thing. His natural forehand is going to go into the Federer backhand. So just being a lefty in and of itself is different for everybody and it presents an uncomfortable look because most players are right-handed but you've got Nadal's this lefty on top of every other physical gift that he has every other tennis gift that he has that's one other wrinkle you have to deal with and that becomes a big problem you said something so profound I had to take notes Brian I'm taking notes (laughs) over here thank you you had me at Star Wars especially if you think about the storyline that Roger gets called Darth Federer right. at some point. And so I don't know if that was subconscious or not, but like your your storyline is so beautifully paralleled that I had to exclamation point it, write it down, and we're going to come back to that moniker when he gets coined it. What you said is exactly what I needed to hear. That's, that's, that's how, he, how he does it. But I'm going to throw this back at you. Most of the matches against Roger, so the... Lifetime score, Roger versus Rafa. Rafa owns it pretty convincingly. I think it's 25 and 16 or something like that. Most of those matches against Roger, though, were on clay. Does that matter at all or diminish anything at all or change anything at all? Or is a win a win a win? Um, I think it's something you take into consideration where... Yeah, Nadal's the greatest clay court player of all time. I, I, that's, I think we've passed the point of 
that being up for dispute. So if you're playing the best clay player of all time, maybe you frame it if you're a Federer fan that, hey, he, he's beaten Nadal on clay because that's something that not many people have done. Um, never at the French, though. No, no, never at the French. And that's um, something that Rafa can always say about Roger on grass and Wimbledon. Absolutely. Um, so it it is one factor to be considered that, you know, he does not own the career head-to-head record against Nadal. I would love to see, Brian, just going on a sidebar here, I would love to see one more French Open final with the two of them. One last crack. One last crack, you know? Um, just for, I mean, there's no dispute about who's the greatest on clay, but it would be so good for the sport to see it one more um, time. I would actually, I disagree, just because I, the way Federer has prioritized a schedule the last few years, you know, and clay is so far down the list that it was, you know, a big deal that he had played the clay season last year in 2019. Now, who knows if and what a clay season here in 2020 will look like. So let's hope he's back in 2021 at full health. And it, I don't see Federer making a big run to the French Open final. Got to pick a spot. Yeah. What would be approaching? Exactly. And the spot is is Wimbledon yeah. uh, for Roger. Um, the, the other thing that we forget seeing years ago, we've never seen is um, – Federer and Nadal at the U.S. Open. They have never met at the U.S. Open. Every time it's looked to be in the card, something very strange has happened to one of them in terms of a loss. Um, and you wonder if we'll ever see that. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, I feel like Novak Djokovic has a lot to say about that. Um, Big time. I but think so have like Tommy Robredo and, and mm. John Millman. Like it, It's very strange over the years. I think we're mostly going to focus on the Roger-Rafa matchup, but let's set the stage. Roger's path and then Rafa's path. First round, Gasquet. Good player. Seen him play. He's always around, but 2-18 and 18 lifetime against Roger. Yeah, so there's this group of players, and we talked about Nikolai Davidenko when we were talking about the 06 Australian Open. There's the group of players that Federer has this head-to-head against when you look at it you almost it's like whoa that's borderline obscene you're a pro no it's not that it's like wow you are a a top player richard gasquet seven in the world exactly and that's the number and he won the first time they played which is on clay both wins are on clay but 18 and 2 is just absurd and gasquet an excellent player he's got the gorgeous looking backhand um he's a he carries himself he's a good looking guy he's got that that french swagger about him saffin vibes i uh, uh, a little more continental i think than okay, saffin all right um so yeah gasquet you know I'm, I'm shedding no tears for the life of richard gasquet um, <laughs> um but yeah this is another one of those guys that Federer just owns this wild head-to-head advantage against. Made it to the semifinals in two grand slams. Nothing to sneeze at, like you said, absolutely. Uh, next round, Tim Henman. The next round after that, fourth round, uh, Mahout got a tiebreaker out of Roger. Career-high 37 in the world. Again, that sounds like, a what is 37? He's in the top point oh 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 one one percent of tennis players in the world. That's what that means. He sits behind... Only Roger, Murray, and Djokovic for most wins on grass. He's the fourth most winningest player on grass. Um, 
I don't know how interesting that is or not, but he's in top-tier company there. Never made it to the second week of a Grand Slam playing singles, but had tons of success as a doubles player. He's got the career Grand Slam in doubles, but unfortunately for him, I mean, he has this... You would almost this legendary, you know, a career grand slam and doubles, but he will go down in history as the other guy in the longest match of all time, the Wimbledon match against John Isner, which is going to be four years from now in 2010, um, with 70 68 in the fifth set. Um, so that unfortunately is where he's remembered, but he's had a remarkable career. Burdick is next, then Onchich, and I want to home in on the Bjorkman semifinal match for a minute. This guy could ball out, Brian, but it's the most lopsided semifinal match since 1922, I read. I know there's an age gap, but he's had big wins against the best of the best of his era. Former number four player in the world, made it to the second week of all the Grand Slams except the French. Any insight or thought as to what happened there? You know, the clock struck midnight for Cinderella. I mean, that's that's what it was. It's a great run. He was an excellent, another excellent doubles player. Um, but if you're a guy who things work out, you get hot, you're 34, you don't expect to be in the Wimbledon semifinals, then you find yourself staring across from a guy who had not lost on this surface, forget this tournament, on this surface in over three years, you were... You knew you could know it could be a, a long or short day, depending on how you looked at it, and that's exactly what it was. Nadal's path. First round plays Bogdanovich. I had to look up to see if he was related to any of the NBA Bogdanoviches, and <laughs> there is no comparison or relation. Uh, plays an American, Kendrick, which is a five-setter. Kudos to Kendrick. I mean, it's huge. And not only did he go the distance, he was up two sets to love. Yeah. So Nadal had to come back. You're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm Rafa Nadal. I've beaten Federer, what was it, four times at this point this year. Uh, I'm this hot up-and-coming player, and I'm playing Robert. K- you know, Nadal respects every single one of his opponents. When you listen to Nadal before a match, he, it sounds like he's playing Federer every single match in the next upcoming match. So he certainly wasn't taking him lightly. But to find yourself down two sets to love against uh, who's re- somebody who's a, let's call him a journeyman, Robert Kendrick, um, that's not the position you found yourself in. So to be able to fight back from there, that was a an, probably an eye-opening day for Nadal. But an, a, a career day, too, for Kendrick. What a, a solid career. He, he got mixed up in a, a positive uh, doping control or a, a positive test that was apparently, I don't know all the details, but it was apparently very questionable about what he had tested positive for. And there was a whole drawn-out fight to try to get that cleared. So I think that wound up hurting him in the end in terms of what it diverted from his actual on-court career. The taint of that man is just, I mean, just watching it happen with Maria Sharapova, even the accusation is enough to almost put you out of commission mentally. I mean, it's, there's no, the, the court of public opinion uh, is a force to be reckoned with. And it's just, uh, it's wild. In that book that I was telling you about that you've already read, I'm, I listened to the audiobook. After Rafa won that match in 2008, he went from the press junket. No, before the press junket, he went to do the drug test. So you have to go from the oh, yeah. court to do your drug test, and then you do the thing. And it's just wild. It's crazy. And the book you're talking about is, is Strokes of Genius by John Wertheim about the 08 Wimbledon final. But 
even beyond that, like that's in competition. So you're thinking, okay, I have to do that, but you have to notify, you can't just go on a, on a whim. Oh, I'm going to go visit my friend in you know, the other side of the country. I'm going to go take a road trip. You have to check in and constantly update with your whereabouts because you need to be available at any time for that knock on the door for a, yeah. a doping test. It's like a parole officer, man. It really is, except they're actually watching you go to the bathroom. Yeah. Next, the third round, he meets another American, a, a player some people have heard of or might have heard of, uh, Andre Agassi. Uh, but he destroys him, straight sets. Uh, final Wimbledon appearance for Andre. And we're going to do a little shine a light on Andre when we talk about the Baghdadis match in the next. Did Roger win that U.S. Open? Yes. Okay, we'll be perfect. talking about so that. We'll be talking about that. Um, and then uh, Nadal plays Labad's qualifier, Niemannen, and then Baghdadis, uh, who was, of course, the finalist in the Australian Open, which we talked about last episode. He's now ranked 18. So he jumped from non-seeded. I think he was in the 50s in the uh, Australian Open, and he's now jumps to 18. But Nadal handles him pretty emphatically. The final, which is where I want to spend most of the time. I have a bunch of watch and reacts for you, and I really want to home in on this goat thing. These are the early moments. This is like, Brian, this is like um, like 91, 92 Bulls, right? This is the yeah. MJ and like who's like who is my foe going to be? And every single year, MJ had a new team as his foe. But this is sort of like MJ versus if the Blazers were that good for three years in a row or the, or the Suns, I would say. This is the Charles Barkley. And it happened quick. There was no real sort of separation for Roger. Roger's got seven Grand Slams at this point, but I believe coming into this final, Nadal already had two. Am I right? Yeah, two French Opens. Two French Opens. I think the best comparison is it's like Federer was the Pistons and then Nadal is Jordan who and, and the Bulls who are just knocking on the door yeah. against the the established power. I don't want to say that, though, because the Pistons are looked back, uh, historically are looked back negatively. So I would never put, I would never put Roger in that little comparison. I would put him in the Bulls comparison. But what you're saying is dead accurate. I was just trying to avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so first set, Roger, this is an amazing statistic, 93% of his first serves went in. And that explains the donut in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, it's also, okay, Nadal had won two majors. He was an up-and-comer. He had beaten Federer, but the Wimbledon final is the Wimbledon final. And walking on court on Sunday, you're not carrying your own bag. They've got an attendant carrying your bag for you. It's just He did not like that. No, it, it, he doesn't because he has his routines. And it's just very different. And so the moment you wonder if that's what that first set scoreline was about, that, you know, the head spinning a little bit, this is a, a different situation for Nadal than he had ever been in before. This is the biggest stage in tennis. And here I am against the world number one. Doesn't matter how many other things you've won. You can't prepare yourself for that moment. So that would be how I would chalk up that first set. Here's how I look at the first set. 6-0, right? I really believe that Rafa was studying him. That was like a, almost a wash. Like, I'm going to see what you're doing. You see it in the second game of the first set on Rafa's serve. You can see him studying Roger's shots. Okay, if I do this, 
you do that. And if I do that, you do this. There's just a couple of moments I identified. Roger breaks him, but something's happening that's not unique to other matches. A lot of players are just happy to be there. In that book, there's a moment where Roger's up 5-1, and there's a court changeover, and the opponent, I think it's his friend, I think it's Mirny, I'm not 100% sure, but he walks up to Roger and he goes, is it okay if I sit next to you? And Roger goes, yeah, there's an empty seat right there. Go ahead. And he just wanted to shoot the shit with Roger. Roger walks back on, serves it out in four serves, and the game matches over. But there's that player against Roger that's just happy to be there at Wimbledon. And then there's this with Rafa where I really saw him almost taking notes. Okay, And he talks about it after the fact that the match got tighter at the end because I figured something out. This, Brian is how Roger breaks him in the first service game. And I think the emphasis here is on Roger's confidence early. Yeah, and that's the Federer, the movement and just how, okay, it's a longer point than you were used to seeing on grass at that point, which is probably to be expected when you're playing Nadal. But when you see how Roger's able to know that Roth is going to go there with his backhand, but then he just anticipates and he pounces to his right. And by the time he gets moving, it's like he's already three steps in the direction he wants to be. It's there's We talk about this a lot. There's no wasted motion or effort or energy everything is going towards the exact spot where he wants to be in this point in particular you're dead right right here though is where i think a little bit more of an experienced rafa would have hit this shot i don't know the the right terminology but he would have hit it to the left so roger's running to the right right now and he has enough time to see that that's what i'm kind of the point i'm trying to make here rafa knows where roger's going so why not hit a winner in the opposite direction instead he hits it right to where roger was running so rafa plays an inside out uh, forehand he goes cross court in the deuce court um deuce court that's yes that's what i was looking so thank you what it basically comes down to is he's trying to win the point right there. He thinks he can get enough angle on it that he'll get it away from Federer. The other thing, that's the higher percentage play. You know, first set of the Wimbledon final, you don't want to be going for broke yet. Trying to quickly change direction and crank it down the line is a little bit tougher to do. So he goes for the higher percentage, just play the forehand, go inside out with it and see if Federer can come up with it, which of course Roger did. Interesting. It's also got to do with the timing of the early point in the game. Take the higher percentage shots. Any uh, any thought on what Roger's doing right here after that point, after that vicious forehand? Uh, what Roger does with his nose here? What's that all yeah, about? Yeah, it's like he hocked a loogie, which doesn't seem very Wimbledon-y to me. Yeah, it's, I was also thinking there was some sort of a, some sort of like an exultation over Rafa. No? Too no, I think he's he had something in he his nose in his and he nose. snot rocketed well, on center court. A little fly flew out there and the camera caught it for all eternity. I'm going to just keep it on screen share because there's a lot of videos I'm going to run through. Yeah. 
McEnroe says that Federer reminds him of Baryshnikov. That's the first time I've heard that. I've made a list of all the things that he's been described as. This is the first time we've heard Baryshnikov uh, on a national stage. Uh, camera cuts to the dashing uh, Miguel Angel Nadal. You're talking about guys like Richard Gasquet and Murat Safin. Uh, Miguel Angel Nadal did not have any trouble in that department either. He looked like a million bucks uh, stole the show um, from the as far as the stands were concerned. Do you know anything about his relationship to Rafa in the game? Is he just a spectator, or did he have any sort of does he have any sort of involvement in his quote unquote team? Um, I think his involvement was he was somebody who once Rafa got to a certain point and they could tell that he was going to be somebody, um, that he's he had been somebody, he was somebody at that point. So having a professional athlete in the family, okay, it's not the same sport, but you play at a high level, just that those that guidance, the lifestyle and the other, those other decisions that basically you don't know how to make until you talk to somebody who has been in that situation. So I think that's where, where he really came in. Rafa was an excellent soccer player when he was younger too. We talked earlier about, um, you know, what would these guys, these big three have done if they hadn't played soccer? And we talked, okay, Nadal, he'd be fine. Uh, Federer would be fine. Nadal probably be playing professional soccer. He probably would have wound up playing, um, but he picked tennis and it seems like he made the right decision. Federer's parents and I think it actually might be a custom, and you're going to probably tell me so in a second here. But Federer's parents were sitting right in front of Nadal's in the same box. That's unusual, right? Yeah, that's unique to Wimbledon. Okay. Um, that's just how how the setup is there. Usually the players' boxes are obviously separate. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, at Wimbledon, it's a very unique quirk. And it's it's the family. The team doesn't sit together. It's just the parents? No, it's... Basically, the player has a certain number of seats, and they can they choose who they give those seats to. Have Djokovic's parents and Federer's parents sat together in that box? So I'm not sure. I would. I'm going to guess yes. Um, we'll see at some point, but because Djokovic's parents, they've been less. They've traveled less the last couple of years. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it's, um, if it's worked out like that, but. Yeah, that's a good question. His parents are not favorites of Roger Federer's. That's the point I'm trying to get at. And it's like, if I have to have my parents sitting in the box, those are the last two people that I would want in there. Um, I saw it. I noticed it. It was interesting. Obviously, we know we're going to dissect the the sort of relationship that uh, Federer and Nadal have, which has evolved into something pretty incredible. Um, I would argue that uh, the relationship between Federer and Djokovic has also evolved into something pretty amazing, all things considered. But uh, that is an interesting custom. It is a got to be a tense custom. If I was a parent, I can tell you right now, I'd be the guy who's pacing in the alleyways. I, I don't know that I can necessarily watch, but that's my problem, not not uh, Nadal's and Federer's parents. Here's Nadal uh, down 5-0. And what's amazing about this to me, Brian, is that he's down 5-0, but he's playing and he's acting as if he's up 5-0. Yeah, so this is on Nadal's serve, too. So the big thing here, as he's completely out of position to play that forehand, so he's just looks not comfortable. But he saves it. But to save it, and the reason he's fired up is because you win a scramble point like that, and especially when you, you find yourself down 
that scoreline in the Wimbledon final, you're trying to get yourself going. You're trying to get the crowd going. You're trying to let your opponent know, like, yeah, that, like, okay, this, put, forget all these first five games. You're not, win- like, I'm giving you nothing right now. Be easy for Nadal to just say, oh, I, I shanked this ball. Let's, let's go into the second set and I'll, I'll pick it up from there. No, he's not giving that up. Um, and I think that's what the message that he's trying to tell himself there. Not that you ever expected Nadal to give up on the point. No, well, this is what makes this is the early this seeds are planted here of what kind of a game he's going to give you every single point. Roger is in mega massive attack mode in this sequence, and to usurp your term, body blows. Nadal is unfazed. He's giving the body blows right back and he's down. And I really respect him for this point. And obviously it's, it's, it's conditioned him into the player that he is. It's, it's what makes him who he is. Nadal comes right back in the second set and breaks Roger. Again, testament to, like, I just don't, got donutted, um, bageled in the first set of the Grand Slam. I, I am. I'm learning. I'm getting better with the terms, aren't I? By the yeah. way, <laughs> uh, and he's unfazed, and I, th- that's the thing that I love about him the most. I'm a huge fan of his as well. And the one thing that separates Rafa from the rest of the players for me is that he can go through each point as if it's its own unique entity, better than anybody. Nadal comes right back in the second set, breaks Roger. This is Nadal serving for the set, down fifteen. 15- 40. We talked before about how, you know, the, the serve is not the biggest weapon for Nadal, but that's a huge first serve. It gets Roger completely out of position and that's saving a break point. And that's the really important part too, because, okay, he's got to win the, he wants to win this set, but to do that, he's got to avoid being broken. And you've got Federer serving at five all. And who knows, you're a couple of points away from going down two sets to love. But just to dig in and come up with the offense just like that, bang, bang, is huge for Nadal. Gets it to a tiebreak. Federer wins the tiebreak. I'm going to jump to the first point of the third set tiebreak. Tie breaks they played over the years. You know, the 08, obviously the fourth Insane. set tie break was, was epic. But yeah, this is incredible. And the doll to come up with that and then the roar that followed it, which it well should have. I mean, just swinging away. Federer goes right at him, center of the baseline, and he's able to just see it and just bludgeon this backhand into the wide open court. But the shots they both came up with throughout that rally were incredible. It's offense on offense. There's very little defense happening here. They're both attacking. This overhead slam right here is where Roger should have put it away, and I think he would love to take that point back. But this set up the... You can see him shaking his head there because uh, he knew that he knew that the fist pump was coming. Uh, that's the first point in the tiebreak. This is the tiebreak, of course, that uh, Nadal won in this tournament, in this championship, and uh, it's the only set that he wins. But he's creeping. Right. That this was that was an emphatic point to let Roger know that we are going to have a decades long rivalry in the making. 
That's exactly what it was. It's We talk about Federer making people uncomfortable. Federer is uncomfortable here because he knows he has lost to Nadal more often than not, especially he's not riding a losing streak against him. I think he lost five of six going into this final. It's just, and oh, okay, I, I raced through the first set. Federer, of course, knew after he raced through the first set that he was by no means free and clear. Even after the second set, getting dragged into a tie break, Federer's up two sets to love, knows he has won absolutely nothing. And then once Nadal wins that third set in the tie break, Federer's thinking, okay, again, here I am in this fight. He has, we talked about the, the metaphor of the the dog, the pack chasing the lead dog, and that's what Federer is here. And Nadal is nipping at his heels once again, getting closer. Rafa wins the third set tiebreak and pounds his chest on the chair when he sits down. There was a joke, not a joke, but there was an article written about him that if he didn't play tennis, he would be, you know, at the top of it. You mentioned soccer, but there was also an argument that he would be the top of his game as an MMA fighter. Uh, he was built as such that he could, you know, uh, crush his opponent. Uh, that was an indication of that when I saw him on the bench, on the chair. Here's Federer taking control and putting it out of reach for Nadal in the fourth. And what I mean from that is there's a certain look that certain players give to Roger. We've already talked about it at least four or five times on past episodes. He got the look or the feel or the vibe of resignation from Nadal, which is a very hard thing to do, but it was a necessary, important thing for Roger. And uh, again, it goes back to this goat conversation that we're going to have. He did get under Rafa's skin as much as Rafa got under his. And that's sort of the beauty of their rivalry. Yeah, that's Federer. The return was 104 miles an hour. And he's able, well, he was able to guess where the serve, I don't know if he guessed or read it, but he saw where the serve was going and was able to slide quickly to his left. So he put himself in perfect position to just absolutely crush that return right at Nadal's shoe tops. Rafa did well just to pick it up off the baseline. And then he comes on and just cuts everything off of that backhand volley. I mean, that's, you know, it's Federer at his best. Here's Roger Bryan, championship point. I think the first serve is going to be a miss, so we're going to watch the first serve and then we'll see the second serve. Yeah, he pumps that one right into the net, but then just being able to serve it out to win Wimbledon. And it's amazing how this, it, as we sit here talking, it's almost like it's old hat, but you can just see what it means as Nadal misses that wide. And there's a different look at this point on Federer's face because I think he knows, and even Nadal's face as they shake hands, Nadal's got this look on his face. He's looking at him furtively right here. Watch this. It's like, yeah, I mean, they're the gunslingers, but they know that they are going to meet again uh, before very long. And I think they both have that feel like Nadal's like, okay, you got me this day, uh, but how how are those last four matches? How, how do they go for it? I mean, he's not thinking that, but it's Nadal knows he can play better. He knows he can win this tournament. Uh, I think Federer knows that Nadal is capable of winning this tournament, but he also knows that he is now four years in a row, the Wimbledon champion, only the third player since the first world war to do that. Brian, Roger accepts the trophy in his jacket. First time thoughts on the jacket decision in general. Well, the first thought is Richie Aprile from The Sopranos, the show we both like with 
Rocco DeMeo, but um, or whoever he took the jacket off. Of. I know it was the yeah, baddest was guy Rocco in Essex DeMeo, County. Toughest guy in Essex County. Um, but this Federer, is a PG podcast. I can't say the full. Yeah, we can't say the, the full yeah. line. But Federer at this point, I think, is and Nike and everybody around him are embracing the fact that he is already an all-time legend in the sport. So Roger, beginning at this Wimbledon, didn't just do this for the final. The whole tournament, he would walk out onto court and then leave court, not in like a like a track top, like a, what you would see players warm up in. He's wearing a cream-colored suit jacket, and it had a little logo on the left breast with three, I think they were rackets, representing the three Wimbledon titles he had won up to that point. Um, what do I think of this? It's interesting. It has people talking about it. 14 years later, as we sit here talking about it, um, could anybody else pull it off? No. Um, do you want to see anybody try? No. Am I going to go to the store and spend $400 on a cream colored Nike blazer? No, you are. Okay. Vic is, (laughs) um, but this is Roger Federer and Hey, when he projects that certain air of elegance about him wearing, what we have here is a jacket. We'll see uh, he'll add pants in coming years, only to Wimbledon. Give him credit for that. He only They only did this at Wimbledon. Um, he added some pants, a uh, uh, monogrammed cardigan at one point. I think that was the the apex of this whole endeavor. It's one of those things we'll talk about. Hey, remember when Serena wore the cat suit yes. at the U.S. Open? It, you think about those iconic outfits, um, obviously iconic for different reasons, but you probably – file Federer in that same drawer is remember those things he was wearing at Wimbledon. Like it or love it, fair statement, he pulled it off. Um yeah, I think it was when he brought in the pants. That's when I, I he lost me. Um, I'm with you on the pants too, but the jacket and the cardigan, uh look man, the guy's style. The guy is, and if you look at all the sponsors that are underwriting him at this point, he's making $60, $70 million a year on sponsorships at this point. That's the Rolex vibe, man. That's, uh, he pulled it off. It wouldn't have been my recommendation because it's not very intimidating. That's kind of the word that I think of. Like he's the number one player in the world. You got to look, you know, you think about those Jordan, going back to MJ because the documentary is still fresh in our minds. Those jumpsuits were intimidating, you know, when they wore the all black or when they, you know, the tearaways, there was an intimidation factor to them. For this, it kind of felt like Sunday tea, which is not what you would attribute. But it's Wimbledon. It's Wimbledon. It's Wimbledon. And that's, I mean, the one I think about in terms of intimidating, yeah, I think those like Bulls warm ups. Think about like when Mike Tyson would walk out, he's wearing like yes. a black t shirt and it's like the cutoff. Yeah. And like he puts the fear of God into you. That's Nadal, too, by the way. Nadal, I, uh, from the audiobook, um, what's the name of the book again? <laughs> Tell me. Uh, Strokes of Genius. Strokes by of John Genius. Wertheim. Thank you. I'll pl- I'm going to keep plugging it. But also, the uh, w- the thing with audiobooks is you don't really pay attention to the title of the author because it, ah, yeah. you're not looking at it. You're just listening to it. So in Strokes of Genius, uh, Nadal, they're very blue-collar uh, about their travel. Early on, this is back in, right. in, 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 uh, it might have changed now. I don't know, but they did not travel in private planes. They took the, the train underground from, uh, Paris to London. Um, the Eurostar. The, yes, the Eurostar. And they had a humble sort of residential setup at Wimbledon. And I liken Nadal's look to the Tyson look of just the cutoff, tearaway, let's go, let's brawl. And then R- Roger comes in sort of like 
Apollo Creed, if you will, to extend the metaphor with the, you know, George Washington regalia on his head and sort of the stars and stripes. It doesn't look intimidating. And that is the one knock I have on it. But he does pull it off. I think his game did all the talking at that point. I'm yes. also not. Yes. Yeah, his game does the talking. I'm also not buying your Nadal comparison because not yet, but soon he's going to start coming on court wearing a $250,000 watch. Um, which I, I think skews things a bit. And even the war, okay, yeah, he doesn't have his own, he might have had, I don't think yet, but he has his own logo as well, um, not yet in 06, but he's being paid to wear the clothing. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not going, it's not Mike Tyson in a black t-shirt coming out to DMX at Wimbledon. But but at this point, yes, is what I'm saying. Like later, like look, like Rocky, Rocky comes out with nothing, but then by Rocky 3, he's got all the trappings of wealth, right? So it's, Nadal's night not quite at that level of Roger sponsorship-wise. He's an underdog coming into this Wimbledon. It's, I'm speaking about just this Wimbledon alone. Give, yeah. me, give yes. me just this one. Yes. Okay. okay. I'll give you that. But yeah, the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar watch is. I'm so glad you brought it up because it has been a huge fascination of mine, and I've talked about it with my friends as I've watched it. Like he does wear it, and he holds it. Like you can see it. Like for somehow, some way, he knows the cameras where they're at, and that watch gets its. The, whoever paid him the money for that watch is getting their money's worth. Is what I would. Do you argue. think they told him, "Oh, just just wear this, and if it gets on camera, great. If not, no big deal." No, they this he yes he knows. Where the camera is of course <laughs> even the surf maybe that brian maybe we just unlocked a conspiracy for the ages maybe that's why his serves take so much longer um okay rafa stats and then i want to get some context from you and then i want to do the i want to throw my little goat chart at you okay Rafa stats. We're going to set the stage for him as we go through this because he's going to be a major figurehead in the storyline. 92% winning percentage on clay versus Rogers 88% winning percentage on grass. That's a standout observation. 65% winning percentage against top 10 players to Rogers 64%. That's a wash for all intents and purposes. 26 to 29 against Novak lifetime versus Roger, who's 23 and 27 against Novak. Novak has a better record against both of these guys lifetime. I don't know what that says yet. We'll find out. And then of course, Nadal is 25 and 16 lifetime against Roger. But before we get into the goat chart, Give me some context on this Wimbledon, Brian. Fourth successful title defense, the emergence of their full-blown rivalry, and the post-game chatter from both sides was real. Where are we at and where are we going? We are going towards the apex of this rivalry, and it's going to play out primarily on this court, on center court at Wimbledon over the next two years now that Federer has won again, but... Once again, it's Nadal nipping at the heels. So it's another clear statement of intent shot across the bow from Nadal that I am right here to share the top spot with Federer. I'm going to win this tournament one day. I think he left the court that day knowing he could win Wimbledon. And I think that, and we, of course we saw it, that's the main thing um, that I think he can take from, from this, from the Nadal perspective. From the Federer perspective, it's another Wimbledon title. It's historic. It's four in a row. He had not lost a grass court match in four years. 
Um, but this one, he had to sweat a little bit more. Even, he's relieved. He's more relieved than he yeah, is happy. Yeah, exactly. Fair? Exactly. Absolutely fair. Okay. Who is the GOAT? We didn't ask the question. We didn't write the question. We are just going to try and come to some level of clarity on it. Uh, we've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it, certainly. And let's start. I came up with some categories. How do you define greatness? We're going to have to go through the list here. Benjamin Franklin said, before you make any decision, you do pros and cons, and you look at your pros and you look at your cons, and if the whatever side outweighs the other will kind of give you an indication of what your decision should be. So this is a fun exercise. I want to, I want to preface this, Vic. I don't love the GOAT argument. Um, and there's been a quote going around Twitter very recently, actually, about this exact question. Um, and I'll tell you who said it after I read the quote. I did things he can never do. He did things I could never do. It's the moments that live and the memories that are with me that are most important. Roger Federer said that in 2012 when he was asked about those comparisons with Nadal. At that point, it was him and Nadal. You could certainly add Djokovic to that conversation now. So I think you, you first have to separate you know most successful from the greatest because those aren't always one and the same, you know, Fair. people, um, I think there's a, I don't know, good chance, but you could say there's, it's more likely than not that Djokovic as things are playing out, will wind up with more major titles than Both out of, of all them. three of them. Uh, does that mean Djokovic is the greatest player of all time? Maybe, maybe not. So I, I, I think they are, they can be mutually, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, essentially Fair. that's how I'm going to, Cut, cut you off a little bit at your ankles here. I will agree and I will acquiesce. This is a fun exercise, if nothing yes. else. There is no right answer. And what you said, that quote that you said, actually, I remember vividly. And when he said that, it actually gave, it was, I actually felt like he was saying it for the fans because it gave me oh, peace. Yeah. It gave me peace. Like, yeah, look, Bill Russell has the most championships um, and uh, Will Chamberlain is was the most dominant player if you look at all of his opponents. But you're going to remember Shaq for being the most dominant player in the NBA. You're going to remember uh, Michael Jordan more than you're going to remember Bill Russell because he affected the game and his competition. Right. So uh, if Djokovic has more titles than Roger and Rafa, it'll trend towards that whole Bill Russell thing. Well, rings, what does that equate to? I don't know. I... I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm going to say it, and I'm speaking for myself only. When it's all said and done, and it's pretty close to being all said and done for Roger. I mean, realistically, there's maybe another one, two years tops. I don't see him playing into his 40s. I don't see a Tom Brady scenario happening one way or the other. Roger and Rafa, when it's all said and done, they are going to be in a rarefied air that, for whatever reason, good, bad, right, wrong, Novak will never quite be. He's always going to be the third wheel to their dynasty. I don't really see that changing. Part of that is because I don't see Novak playing either one of them in too many more finals. There might be a couple more finals with him and, and Rafa, but Novak's going to be leading in the new wave, the new era of tennis. So I think I agree with you in that he is always going to be third in terms of how he's viewed like the pedestal that he is that Djokovic has put on is always going to be a little bit lower than Federer and Nadal. I think a lot of that has to do with timing 
you know, it took a little bit more seasoning for him to really turn himself into the player that he became. And by that point, Federer and Nadal had already been well-established. His personality is a little bit different um, than those two guys, which maybe attracts some people. Maybe it turns off some people, but I, I think it, it produces a different view of him. But I think that based on what he's done, there's a very good case that Djokovic is the greatest player of all time. Here's a crazy thought to follow on. Would you say he's an amalgamation of the two of them? He's like Voltron. He has all the strengths. He checks off all the boxes on both of their, what was the term that we used? Not weaknesses, but chinks in the armor. He's a better version of both of them combined. Is there any validity to that statement? I hesitate to go to say that because that makes it sound like, you know, you, you made him in a lab and he's this cyborg who has long hair and bulging biceps, but also wears a white blazer on. Like he's not like somebody just took the best in of the, both of them. He is just, he's just excellent. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, well, I guess, you, you know, maybe if he's the best version of them, like, okay, Federer is a great returner. Nadal is a great returner. Djokovic is the greatest returner of all time. Federer is a great mover. Nadal is a, a very fast mover. Djokovic is really fast, but has unbelievable athleticism and flexibility and can get everywhere. He's great at defense. Um, but when you make the GOAT argument, I think there are other things to be considered. And we've talked about this before. The Federer, the semifinal streak at majors, the quarterfinal streak at majors for Federer that Nadal and Djokovic, I don't think will let, they've never gotten it. I don't think they ever will because they'd have to play for about 10 more years. Um, okay, you could make this, you could say, oh, well, they, they were hurt. They missed that tournament. Yeah, and that that's unfortunate for them. But Federer, you know, part of it's luck, but part of it's he's doing something right where at his peak, he never missed time, considerable time. He was very fortunate in terms of injury. So I think when you talk about the greatest of all time, the best ability is availability. And Federer being there week in, week out. We talked earlier about some of those weird losses that Djokovic had. Um, you know, we talk about um, Dennis Istman in Australia a couple of years ago. Nadal, you think of Dustin Brown and uh, Lucas Russell, some of those strange losses. When Federer was in his pomp, he never had those those real head-scratching losses. Okay, you can make the argument that the caliber is different now, but he didn't fall into those traps. So I, I think those are points for Federer. Nadal, you've got the greatest clay court player of all time, the most successful clay court player of all time. That would be a, a career for most people. But the way he has continued to evolve, we talked about the fact that he struggled with injuries early on, but then he essentially found a way to power through and persevere. And I, I think that draws a lot of respect because who would have thought when Nadal won, the Nadal completed the career grand slam at the U.S. Open 10 years ago, 2010. If I had told you at that point that the tournament he's going to win second most in his career would be the U.S. Open, you'd think I was crazy. He's won the U.S. Open four times. We talk about how difficult that is to win. It's incredible. He's won it four times. And of course, what he's done at the French Open, 12 titles uh, needs no further explanation. But Nadal has turned himself into this well-rounded player. And then there's Federer, who has won everything. He has been there. He's been consistent. He's doing it now at, a, at an advanced age. I think if Federer had gone away after 2013, after 2014, and never won again, that hurts his case. But I think his case gets further helped by what he's done the last few years, this second resurgence that he's had over the last couple of years, picking up a few more major titles to get to 20. That counts for something in my book too. 
Absolutely. Okay, I've made my list. And this is the second episode in a row where you've got me taking notes. So you've been doing yeoman's work, my friend. Oh, wow. Best ability is availability. I love that. That's, that's, I'm going to put that on a wall. I'm not kidding. That's, I, I'm going to show that to my kid because my kid is quitting <laughs> on everything. Where Everything I'm trying to teach him right now in the backyard, he's like, I don't, I'm not good. I can't do this. And I'm going to say, look, showing up is 85% of everything. Exactly. Man. Exactly. Okay. Roger on the left column. And Rafa on the right column. Now, this is a fun exercise, okay? Because this is what fans do. This is how we do. Uh, better serve. Who you got? Roger. Grit. Nadal. Fitness. Um, so it's interesting you say that because when you talk about tennis globally, the global term for fitness is like health. Like, oh, he's fit to play. Um, but as Americans, we tend to think of it like he's in great shape. Flexibility. Um, to me, I read that as a combination of flexibility, agility, and endurance. Then probably Nadal. Mm. Ah. Speed. Nadal. I'm biased, so I'm not even going to do this. This is just for you. Okay. <laughs> I started to make my list and then I just, I just stopped. Worst matchup. Who's a worse matchup to play against? If you're a player, the more dreaded matchup. See, I think Nadal, but I don't think this... I think Nadal because he poses more problems. Uh, we talked about he's a lefty, and that's unusual. People don't see... You don't see as many lefties. Um, yeah, Nadal. Better backhand. Nadal. But again, like I'm saying, this is why this argument can bother me because I'm saying these things and it makes it sound like I'm, I'm saying that Nadal should blow Federer off the court. I mean, Federer's perhaps the greatest player of all time. These are just boxes Nadal ticks when you look at them in a vacuum. And fortunately, we don't play in a vacuum. No, but it also raises another interesting follow-on conversation for another episode. Despite all the attributes that would strongly suggest one thing, very much another thing is arguable or has happened, right? So- right. Because the facts are facts. Objectively speaking, we're sitting here at 20 Grand Slams to 19 Grand Slams and the records and all the other stuff, all the intangibles. But continuing on, for the purposes of completing this exercise, who's got a better net game? Federer. Nadal's very good. I mean, Nadal's won two Olympic gold medals in doubles um, with Mark Lopez. But I'll say because of the... I'll say Federer. Clutch. That's a good question. Um... See, this is my problem with the question, though, because when you when you say yeah, clutch and you say when you say basketball and you say clutch and you, it's, it's MJ LeBron debate, it's auto. You don't even have to think. You just say Jordan. You right. And, and, and the thing that's saddening to me a little bit is that we have to think with Roger. It's not apparent, but anyway. That was my plea for you to say, Roger, but say whatever you want to say. So the problem is with, with that for him, I, I just think, you know, you think back to the Wimbledon final last year, those U.S. Open semifinals where he had the match points against Djokovic, championship points in the case of Wimbledon, and he couldn't get them done. So, yes, he's clutch, but you also see moments. This is the other thing with tennis, too, that's hard. You know, Michael Jordan loses one game in the NBA finals. Okay, then they're going to have to play an extra game. That's fine. He never lost an eliminate. He never got to a game seven in NBA finals. Roger Federer has a couple bad moments in a, in a major final and that's it. It's gone. It's so it's yeah, they're both super clutch. Um, 
but you, I mean, they've both blinked and, but they've also both made guys blink more often than they've blinked. So it's, can I call that? You can give them a tie. They can each get a, yeah, point. I'll give them a push on that one just because they're both clutch. Who is their own worst enemy? Which one of them is their own worst? Oh, enemy? like in their own head. Yeah. Like who beats them? Like, right. Who beats themselves rather than getting beaten? Who beats themselves more? I don't think either of them do. And I think that's, that is a testament to both of them. I think they're both um, very good at moving on quickly and not dwelling on things. Um, so the other person would get a point if they weren't their own worst enemy. So basically I have to give both of them a point now. There you go. Who's more fun to watch? Be careful now, Brian. Depends what you like. <laughs> you should have um, been a lawyer, man. You really should have been a. These are some very diplomatic and debatable sort of like putting the person on the witness stand at ease and just like shooting down all of my rebuttals here. This is great stuff. So, who's more fun to watch? Um, seriously, I, I think, and this goes with everybody. Like I, I've been in you know Ash Stadium at the U.S. Open. The roofs closed. And the dolls. Playing some, I think a couple of years ago, he played Karen Hatchinoff, who, who hits the heck out of the ball. And I mean, they're crushing the ball, just drilling it. You know, their fist pumps after every point, Nadal's flexing, crowds roaring. And you, you think, like, there is no place in the world I would rather be right now than watching these two. Just, it's like watching, I don't know if you're a boxing guy, like Arturo Gotti, like, just not that they're brawlers, but just throwing these wild haymakers at each other. And then you look at Federer and it's like watching a surgeon. Both of those are really, really fun to me. I think it just depends on your personal preference, what you want to watch. There's no wrong answer. So what's your preference? Um, I guess maybe Federer because when he gets on a roll and just starts rolling, it's like, it's a, it's like a sight to behold. It's really fun watching Nadal into this get into this like drawn out brawl. Um, but you know what, you know, I'm going to say Federer because the amount of time Nadal takes between points. So that's, that's what puts Federer over the top here. Records. Um, Federer, definitely Federer. Um, yeah, because, okay. 19 majors is ridiculous for Nadal. 12 French open titles is ridiculous for Nadal, but when you are so good on that one surface, yeah, you're the best player of all time on that surface, but for Federer to be able to spread his out more over a longer period of time, taking absolutely nothing away from Nadal, I just think that the well-rounded, like the fact that Nadal is so good on clay almost hurts the overall, if that makes sense, Mm. for his 19. And like most of the tour, like you could play most of the year on clay. Yeah. So like it's, you can like fatten up on clay for lack of a better term. Well, that was what I was going to say. Uh, was one of my final thought questions for you. So 12 out of 19 grand slams, that's almost 70% of his championships are coming from clay. Does that diminish him in any way? It, obviously no, but like, is it easy to say like, well, yeah, if you take away the clays, but at the same point, it's like, well, if you take away the grass from Roger, right. then it's, you know, but Roger doesn't have 12. He's got only got eight, but eight's a lot. I mean, yeah, you've got to go. I mean, you have to play on uh, whatever the surface is. Like yeah. it's, by the way, what surface, what tournament plays on carpet? 
I see carpet showing up every now and then, and they both yeah, have no, low winning percentages on carpet. Nobody really plays on carpet anymore. A lot of indoor tournaments, uh, not a lot, but some indoor tournaments used to be on carpet and it's not used anymore. I feel like it's a liability, right? Especially for the- It's players. like, it's like AstroTurf, basically. It's not like they're playing on like a shag rug. <laughs> uh, final category, and then I'll tell you your score, although I think you know. Uh, intangibles. Federer. Wow. It's a dead even tie at 7-7. Seven, seven. And this That's goes fitting. to show you that, and look, and Rafa started strong. You know, you went at with the grit, with the fitness, with the speed, with the matchup. It was like, oh my God, it's out of the water. But then there's this whole thing. It actually came out as 7-7. Seven, seven. I was sure it was going to be heavily skewed towards Rafa for all the reasons that are you're actually right for. But from a totally conscientious, objective take on this which you gave it came up dead even wow i didn't even try to do that on purpose no to appease and I, you here's the thing i wonder well i think i think you did kind of give me the uh the better the more fun to, uh, the better player to watch i'll say that you made your case to make me believe you without any duress that was a great exercise actually and i think that i'm gonna hold i'm gonna keep this seven seven circled for when we go through for the remaining grand slams and see if any of this changes or if any of the yeah. conversation changes any final thoughts i have one do you have anything that you want to say to put your capstone on wimbledon 2006 i think when we look back and even now we're talking about it that, that we have been in the golden age of men's tennis and i think this 2006 and especially this Wimbledon is one of those, you know, those touchstone moments that you can really point to as, as an example. Now the Wimbledon finals, these two played only got better. It's amazing. This was the the least competitive of the three. Um, But yeah, I would say this is um, it's historic. Just when you talk about the golden age of tennis, you think of these two, especially on this court and 2006 is where it all began at that point. My final thought is uh, having watched two of these Grand Slams back-to-back with Tony Roach in the crowd, I want his hat, Yes Optus. I'm going to try my best to get it and wear it for one of our episodes. That's my... So, Vic, let me uh, pause you for one second. Uh Hang on. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. So in our Australian Open match or recap, I was actually wearing this hat and on the back it says Uh-oh. Optus and on the <laughs> side it says yes. yes. Awesome. So I, fi- I figured I should um, you know, honor the areas we're talking about. So I was wearing a Melbourne Stars cricket hat. Uh, they actually play in the Melbourne cricket ground right next to Melbourne Park, the Australian Open's play. I switched to an England cricket hat, um, cricket theme here fitting with Wimbledon and grass, but yeah, Optus, yes. Beautiful. You made my day. I am going to, I have the US Open 2005 hat from when I was there. I did it completely, I did not wear it, obviously. I have a 2006 hat and then I have the RF logo hat, which I was going to save for down the road. 
but uh, good stuff. Yeah, the Tony Roach hat did get me feeling nostalgia. I, how much back then I wanted to have it, and it made me realize that I wanted it now. So I'm going to go on eBay, and I'm going to try and find it. This has been a pleasure as always. Next, what's on tap? We got, uh, We've got we're US not Open. far away. We're 2006 US Open with a very familiar face in the final, but we'll have lots of... Lots of Andre Agassi talk, and we'll put a uh, historical recap on what might be the best year we've certainly seen up to that point, or maybe you've seen up to that point in the history of tennis, but one of the all-time great years. Sounds good. Stay well, man. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Vic. You too.